This is the All In Gospel Podcast, where we go through the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse, every week. If you like the podcast, go ahead and subscribe or join us at allingospel.com. Enjoy your Bible study. Blessings. So we're in Exodus 24 tonight. Grant was praying and thanking the Lord. I thank the Lord that we have God's word and that it's been left with us. And that's kind of one of the points that's going to come in the Bible study tonight is that God leaves us with his word and that we can study it and see what God has to say. And that's pretty cool. So um, we started, I'm going to, this part of Exodus really began in Exodus 20. And at the very beginning of Exodus 20, it's thou shall have no other gods before me. That's such a difficult passage. Um, so it's the, the first time in world history that we have any religion where the God doesn't tolerate other gods. And if you think about it, all the religions of the world at this time, the gods didn't have a problem with other gods. Like Ra didn't have a problem with Isis existence, right? Zeus didn't like take issue with Hermes. Like the gods would have conflicts with each other, but the, the, the theology was ready to accept other gods. So the way the Egyptians dealt with, with Yahweh is Yahweh is just another god, right? But Yahweh, this, this polytheism that was all over the planet, it's disappearing quickly with, with these, these children of Israel. This god takes no other god and doesn't accept other gods. And everything in my will as a human being wants to get excited about stuff and things and idols and other things. And it's the first point of conflict psychologically that humans have with this God, is this God demands our reverence. And that's something that's extremely hard to do when there's other things to revere. So then I started thinking about, like, in America today, relativism. Well, this is my truth, but your truth is your truth. And that's kind of a form of polytheism, right? That there's no ultimate truth. And that's a, a, not just a psychological issue, it's a theological issue for God. And that's the same issue God was taking up with the children of Israel thousands of years ago. No other gods before me. And all we want to do is say, well, yeah, but still I want to do this thing or that thing. And our discussion after Bible study last time kind of got into like, well, where's the line? Like, where is something just a hobby, and when does it become my worship? And that line, Levi, after a lot of people left, Levi was, I'm going to call Levi, I was saying, like, I just want a rule. I just want a rule that says, here's where that line is. And God artfully doesn't give us that. Like, that's our job, to work that out in our life and to do that. So remember that context of what we're doing here. There's no equivocation law. Very simple, very basic. I can teach it to the youngest of children. Don't dissemble people. Don't lie. Don't have adulterous thoughts about other people. Like, keep yourself pure. So this call to pureness that God gives to the people, and he gives it, he defines what holiness is, he blesses it if you do it, and if you don't do it, there's this, what's going to happen then, right? Then you're guilty. We don't know what happens when you're guilty. So the word now in verse 1, Exodus 24, verse 1, now, I just wanted to go back through all that. That's where we're at. We just got done with the law, right? And now he says to Moses, so this is sequential. Remember I said before that they're saved, they're led by God, they move to virtue, then they get the law, and now it's time to seal the deal. There's a covenant. If you agree with this law, let's make a deal. So now he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, 
and 70 of the elders of Israel in worship from afar. And Moses shall alone come near the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people go up with him. So he, now he said, this is God still talking. Remember in the last chapter, God was talking to the entire nation of Israel. They could hear his booming voice. And at the very end, they said, we want Moses to be our mediator. Like it's too much. It's too overwhelming. I think of like a nightmare and you wake up and it's like overwhelming, right? That feeling of it's just too much. Even if the nightmare wasn't scary. And later on, when you get your rational brain back, you're like, why was I scared by that? That wasn't really a real nightmare. But I think it was just this overwhelming power of God was intimidating for the people. So first you have 2 million Hebrews, which if you just take population growth rates, that's about a tenth of the planet at this time, is hearing directly from God, right? So, and I think the tenth is kind of relevant. Nadab and Abihu, if you go back to Exodus 6, 23, those are Aaron's two sons. So we're establishing with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, the priesthood. They're going to be the priesthood in the coming days. Then you've got 70 elders, which establishes the judge system, which was, remember Jethro said to set up these judges. So you've got the church and you've got the government. So these leaders from both are kind of represented here. And um, it says, come up to the Lord, you Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 elders issue and worship from afar. This isn't worded like it's a privilege, a good thing. This is a responsibility that they have. After saying, we want you to mediate, God says, no, no, no. Okay, then I want these people I'm going to pull aside. They're going to come and at least worship me from afar. So it's a responsibility that comes on this leadership role. Um, a responsibility that they screw up. Because remember Nadab and Abihu, I, you might not remember. Going forward, those two are going to break the rules and help make a golden calf. right? So they're actually going to get killed for their sins. And the rest of the Israelites won't get killed for that sin. So this role of leadership holds a de uh, Nadab and Abihu to a much higher standard. When they break the rules, God kills them, right? When the Israelites break the rules, there's forgiveness. But there's a responsibility with leadership. Teachers in the room, there's a responsibility with being a teacher. You take on this role where it's your job to pray for those kids. It's your job to teach those kids and train them. And you're held to a higher standard. So... This group's going to carry out the law, and they need some experience with God in order to lead. So there's this assumption that leadership needs direct exposure to God, and they're going to get it. The law <clears throat> is promised, and remember at the end of last chapter, there was a nameless angel that was a voice they could hear, chapter 23, verse 21. That same nameless angel is going to fight their battles, verse 23, and that nameless angel will be their judge, verse 21. And God puts his name on him. Um, and that's probably fulfilled with Jesus and that the name of God is put inside of Jesus. And he speaks as both judge and one that they can hear him. So Moses seems to be taking the place of this angel in the short term because in verse 1 he asked Moses to come up to him and the angel doesn't seem to appear yet. In fact, this nameless angel is doesn't really appear until John 1 when, when in the Gospel of John he argues that Jesus is that angel, right? So that's the last we kind of hear about this angel until the New Testament. So all the words of which the Lord will said we will do includes one of the things the Israelites said they would do is they would listen to this messenger that would come. So they've already promised and that's part of the first covenant. So I want to address this idea of a covenant because that's what this chapter is about. We're digging into it. 
that somehow or another this covenant isn't the covenant that's made with Jesus. And that's true. Jesus renews or makes a new covenant. Um, and But it's not the case that this covenant, re, that that new covenant replaces the old covenant. That's what's called replacement theology. So if you take theology classes, you'll run into a thing called replacement theology, which is with Jesus that replaces everything in the Old Testament. Um, so I started looking into that a little bit. And first of all, replacement theology becomes popular in cultures where nobody knows the word of God. In biblically illiterate cultures, replacement theology rears its ugly head and starts to become more prominent. It's becoming a lot more prominent in our culture. It's being taught in our seminaries. It's getting, it's growing, but it only grows in a context where people don't read the word of God themselves. So it pops up. The first, um, the first mention of the law that we see in the New Testament I think it's interesting is in Matthew 5, verse 17 and 18. It's Jesus specifically bringing up the law, and it's the first mention of it in the New Testament. And here's what he says. Think not that I've come to destroy the law or the prophets. I have not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Specifically, he's fulfilling Exodus 23, the last chapter. That's the law, right? For verily, truthfully, I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or tittle in no wise shall pass from the law till everything's fulfilled. In other words, the law is going to stay in place all the way through to the end, right? So when we read this, we're reading God's will for humanity, and there are entire libraries dedicated to explaining this verse away. Or the alternative, if you don't want to read through a library of books on replacement theology, you can just say, or... The Old Testament law is actually in place through all of eternity because that's what Jesus said was going to happen, right? So we just take it at face value. So Jesus fulfills the covenant. He institutes a new one at the Last Supper, and we get to verse 3. Moses came and told all the people, told the people all the words of the Lord. So everything we've just read in the last three chapters, all the judgments, everything we've read in the last two chapters, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has said, we will do. All the words is a contract that we've heard. So I want to stop at this point before we get into Numbers and Deuteronomy and Leviticus, which expands on each of the Ten Commandments. We have a very limited law right now, and it's one of those things where is there any part of the law at this point that if we were the children of Israel and we just heard what we've heard over the last three weeks, two weeks, is there anything we would disagree with? And you think, not really. It's harder to do it, but I don't disagree with it. That idea of don't murder, I'm okay with living in a culture where nobody kills each other. Don't lie, I'm really okay with a culture where I can trust that any word out of anybody else's mouth is the true word. Don't try to rip each other off. Be responsible for your donkeys. Be responsible for the holes you dig. Like, take care of things. I like this culture. The more I think about that law, the more I think I want to live in that country where I can just trust the people and my neighbors and I don't have to worry about getting ripped off or stolen or insulted. I don't have to worry about false witness. I don't have to worry about anything other than that. And I don't have to worry about quirky, weird religious crap that comes out of Egypt. Like all those weird ceremonies they have and the nasty stuff they would do with animals and all that sort of thing. I don't have to worry about any of that. And I have some freedom. If I want to make bricks, I can make bricks. If I want to do other things with my time, I can do other things. Pharaoh doesn't rule me. God does. And I like that kind of world. So at, at this point, is it hard to agree with the law? Not really. It's harder to do the law, but to agree with it? And so when all the people say, we'll do everything that the Lord says we'll do, that's kind of easy to get there. So prior to mucking it up, prior to expanding on it, prior to 613 explanations, 
And prior to, like, remember I mentioned there were 50 plus 50, 50 volumes of the Talmud? Like, there's a whole library of Jewish interpretation of the law. Before we get into any of that stuff, this is the law. Is there any problem with it? And at its base level, any kid could read that and go, yeah, I kind of agree with all that. I don't have a problem with it. So just the basics right now. Be nice, love God. The problem isn't then the message. The problem is my heart and my willingness to accept the message, right? Because we immediately want to start arguing with what we can do and what we can't do, which is a question of human will. And our own will is a terrible opponent to holiness because we want what we want, right? Like a dog trying to get out of the space we're trying to have it in, right? Our will is a force of nature. And to fight against our own will is a battle that Paul talks a lot about. But here in verse 3, the people say, we'll do it. And I think that's a natural reaction, that they want to do what's in here. Whether or not they do it is the question. They're going to screw it up really quick. Um, I'm going to close at the end of tonight on Psalm 1, right? And if any of you want to kind of keep a thumb in Psalm 1 while we're reading, just flip back and forth. Listen to how David responds to the law. It's a, and it's the first psalm. Like he puts it right up front and he just celebrates it. And the way he celebrates it is by talking about nasty people and godly people. And I'm going to stay away from nasty people and I'm going to hang out with godly people. And he chooses to hang out with people that are good for holiness. And that's a great distinction that the law brings you to. I'm going to, I'm going to be with people that love the law and I'm going to avoid people that don't love the law. So it's super clear, stay away from defiance and submit to God. Verse 4, and Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. And he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. So he writes everything down. So, so far it's been a verbal covenant. Now we're going to write it down and make a written covenant, which is the seeds of the book that we're reading right now. God's words are so precious and important, it's not left up to human recollection. Well, I think he said, don't kill people if you don't, you know, if they haven't done anything to you, right? So, but it's not left to that. The words get written down as God said them. Uh, the 12 pillars represent the people of Israel. And then there's the altar, which represents God. And we're going to see that those things come together in a sacrifice, which is going to further seal the covenant. Remember the pillars were mentioned in that searching for Mount Sinai thing that we watched? Um, so build an area that people can go. There's a visible rep representation, and we're going to have that. It also says Moses wrote all the words of the law. He rose early in the morning. There are people that use half of that verse saying, God says you're supposed to get up early in the morning. That is so not what that <laughs> verse is saying. I just got to say that because I've had that thrown in my face, and then I read it, and I'm like, it just says Moses got up early. And wouldn't you get up early if you're talking to God the day before, and God's still waiting, and be like, I'm getting up and talking to God some more. It'd be a really exciting moment. It would be hard to sleep in. It's like your birthday, right? So that is not an argument for early risers are more holy. It's, that's not what's going on there. <laughs> Steph. <laughs> then he sent young men of the children of Israel. There's nothing special about young men here. Look at what they're going to do. They're going to wrangle some cows who, burnt, who's, who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. So it's not that little old ladies are less special than young men. It is simply that young men are better at wrestling cows, right? <laughs> and getting them to go to a sacrifice where other cows are yelping in pain, right? So that's something young men are just better suited to do. Um, the covenant is written, it's sacrificed over, and now it's going to get read and confirmed. At this point, there's no priesthood. 
And I think that's important to know. We haven't established Aaron as the priesthood yet. These are just some young guys. They, nobody gets the name of giving the first offering to God because it's not the offering that matters. It's the covenant that matters, right? Um, there's a ceremony here that's established. Uh, it's common in the ancient world. A burnt sacrifice, you see how they mention two things? There's a burnt offering and a peace offering. Those two kinds of offerings are going to be consistent throughout the Bible. Leviticus gives us a lot more detail on those, so I'll get into them more in Leviticus. But in short, a burnt offering is for sacrifice and showing your obedience. You take the cow, you burn it up to ashes. It's just gone, you're just giving it away, right? A peace offering is one of thankfulness and gratitude to the Lord. It's more like burnt offering is more like worship and a peace offering is more like praise. Does that make sense? Right? And a peace offering, you don't burn it to ash, you burn it to perfect barbecue and you have a feast afterwards. That's what you do with it. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. So the blood is a symbol of life to the Jewish people. It was to almost every ancient uh, culture at this time. One life is being given for the life of other people. So when you make a covenant of blood with somebody, and we still kind of do this with blood brothers, you know, where people cut their hands and you make a covenant of blood, you're saying, my life is tied to this covenant. So when they kill the cow, they're binding that life to others. So what's really important when you make a blood covenant is where the blood gets sprinkled. So take look uh, look closely at that in the coming verses. Um, oh, half he sprinkles on the altar. God has already given his side of the covenant. So the blood gets sprinkled on the altar right away because God's already down for this covenant. He's already signed the paperwork, right? Then he took the book of the covenant, pretty much Genesis and Exodus, what we've already been reading, and he read it in the hearing of the people, that stuff he wrote down. So he just read the last three, four chapters at the very least. And he said, all that the Lord has said, we will do, we will be obedient. So they repeat themselves. Verse three was a verbal agreement. Verse four is a written agreement. Verse seven, after the blood has been shed, now we're in a legal agreement. So there's three different agreements that have been made. The word is not negotiated. It just says the Lord said, all that the Lord has said, we will do. It, I think it's really important to note they're not bickering with God. They're not cutting deals with God. They're not negotiating. They're not saying, I don't know about that thing with sorceresses. You know, they're not doing that. They're saying, we'll do everything God just said. So God establishes the law, and it's not really for the children of Israel to argue with them about that, right? It's, will you do it or won't you do it? So... What's, I think what's interesting is when you take a life as a symbol for a covenant, then when the covenant is broken, what's supposed to happen is the person who breaks the covenant gets killed. So when the children of Israel agree to this under a blood covenant, the rules are, if you break the covenant, that your life should be given to replace the life of those oxen that were given as a symbolic sacrifice. If that's the case... How much more then can we look at, again, if we're looking at the Old Testament saying, where's Christ in this, how much more is Christ's sacrifice going to demand of the world at the end of days? Follow me. If a lowly cow binds an entire nation of Israel, what does the Son of God on the cross as a blood covenant sacrifice, what kind of covenant does that bind all of humanity to? And the reverse is too true too that same sacrifice atones for our sins and is paying the price for when we've broken a covenant. So this sets up a law that's actually the law that gets us saved later on in, in the New Testament, right? When we say, I accept that Jesus died for my sins, that's not just a mantra that you pray in Sunday school, 
right? It's a massive foundational concept of covenant, covenant breaking and covenant redemption. I think that's super cool, but I'm a geek. I get that. So the seed of the Bible is here. Um, their history, the history of these children of Israel uh, is going to be the thing that validates God's covenant through all of history, right? If you can eliminate Israel, you eliminate that this covenant that just got made because their covenant isn't broken until the end of days. I think that's kind of neat. So there's no written history until this point. This is the first point in the Bible where they say they wrote down the history, right? And they kept it in, in this kind of seed format of what will become the Bible, right? Verse 8, Moses took the blood, now he gives the second half of the blood, and he sprinkles it on the people, and he said, this is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. Half the blood went on the altar, half the blood goes on the people, like literally spraying the people from a distance. So that same singular oxen life is now shed and on both the altar and the people together. One life binds all these people together. The covenant, make note of this, is not made with Moses, which is a huge difference from every other pagan religion at this time. The covenant gets made between the God and the priest, and the priest speaks for the people. Notice this is a really huge difference that we kind of take for granted. Moses is administering this, but the covenant of the the covenant which is the Lord has made with you according to all these words. You is the children of Israel. It's a covenant made with a whole people group. So almost a thousand years later, God does not forget this covenant. This is a huge epic moment in the Bible. But it's easy to just read over quick. Zechariah 9.11 says, Because of the blood of your covenant, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. It's a legally binding sacrifice, and it's treated as such all the way up to Christ's sacrifice. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Hebrews 13, verse 20 and 21. This is the covenant that they're talking about. This is the covenant of blood. And all the covenant is, is do you like what God has intended for your people? What he defines as holiness? Will you try to do this? And I remember I talked about when we were going to the law, it's really convicting because you're like, dang, I screw up on this all the time. But that's not what we're expected to do. We're not expected to successfully do it. We're expected to try, right? That we aspire to this thing. Can we covenant to that? So our dealing with God through the new covenant follows the exact same pattern. What Jesus does is he fulfills this. He doesn't erase this. So the words of God have to get read. You got to read the Bible and know what it says. And the Bible says... God gave his only son so that you might be saved, right? And if that's the case, you have to make a sacrifice. Lord, I give you my life. I submit my life to you. I'm going to sacrifice my life to serve you. And then you receive God's words and God starts speaking into your life and those words start to change you. And slowly but surely that consuming fire takes over your life and you become a different person than you used to be. And then you receive the blood of the sacrifice. You receive the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross, right? And the order of these things is, of course, theologically where we might get into, you know, finer points, right? Well, first you do this, then you do this, but they all kind of go together, right? That is the salvation kind of message. We make a covenant with God and we still make that covenant. And that's all the people of Israel had to do too. It wasn't that fancy. Moses said, do you accept all this? And they said, yeah, we'll do every word God says. 
That's the covenant. And that's still kind of the same thing today. Do you accept that Jesus died on a cross for your sins? Do you accept that you have sins? Do you recognize the law calls you a sinner? Yeah, I've broken the law. Do you accept that Jesus is a sacrifice for that? Yeah. Will you try to do what Jesus wants you to do? I'll do it for the rest of my life. It's easy. You're a believer. Welcome to the family. It's not that hard. And it's so easy. And it's so reasonable and logical that we account for our sins because justice demands it. And the only thing that accounts for us screwing up our life is to give our life to God in, in, a, in a living sacrifice, right? We will do these things as a full devotion to the truth. Here's another concept. Okay, I'm going to go off on a tangent. You know, I complained about my pastor going off on it. I'm going to go off on a tangent here because I think this is a really cool idea. They say we will do it. And I think that's such an important biblical concept that resounds throughout the entire book, right? So I want to do a couple things. Get ready with your note-taking. Matthew 5 I want to start with what Jesus says in Matthew 5, because the idea isn't that we perfectly carry out the law like holier-than-thou people. The goal is that we're trying to do it every day we wake up in the morning, right? So Jesus agrees that this is an all-in decision. You don't do it halfway. And you know our, our website's called All In Gospel, right? So you know I like that idea. This is an all-in decision, right? Don't make it lightly. Don't be lukewarm. But here's Matthew 5. I'm going to read verse 19. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men to do so shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. It's not about breaking or keeping. It's about trying to do them. Do you hear the difference there? Our goal is to do and teach the commandments, all of them. And it doesn't matter if nobody shows up. I'd preach to a wall if I had to. But I want to learn this stuff, try to do it myself, and whoever wants to learn about it, Let's learn about it together. Make sense? All right, here's another one. Flip forward to Matthew 23. I wait to hear her pages stop, or she gets upset that I go too fast. Matthew 23, I'm going to read verse 23. <laughs> Jesus goes after those holier-than-thou Pharisee legal, legalistic lawkeeper people, and this is what he says. Woe to you. When Jesus says woe to you, that's bad. Right? We'll get to that more in the New Testament, but anytime Jesus starts with woe to you, you're not in good shape. Get ready to get it right in the face. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You pay tithe and mint of anise and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought you, these ought you to have done and not to leave the other undone. You're doing all the little stuff, but you're forgetting mercy and faith and the big stuff, the covenant, right? Luke goes out of his way throughout his entire gospel to show how Jesus fulfills the law in every regard. In fact, the mantra in the gospel of Luke is according to the law, according to the law, throughout the gospel of Luke. Just give it a read this week and look for every instance where Luke says, according to the law. Jesus did this according to the law. It's throughout the whole thing. So we build a reverence for Jesus's life because we have the law. We can see how much we've failed and we can look at Jesus's life and see that he did everything according to the law. He did the impossible. We should then elevate and know this is God. No human can do that. Unless I'm just super subhuman, there are humans that can, but most of us can recognize we can't do it. But here's a guy who did. Paul, Again, consistent throughout the New Testament. Romans 2 is where I'm going to read. Verse 12. I'm waiting for you. Don't, don't you worry. <laughs> Go forward in your Bible. If you get to the 
Book of Mormon, you've gone way too far. All right. For as many have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And as many have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. Today, churches love to dismiss the law or parts of the law. But Paul didn't do that. Not in the least did Paul dismiss the law. In fact, he said, we're all going to get judged. That's the downside of reading through the law and coming to Bible study. Now that you know it, you're supposed to do it, right? Romans 2, 13, the very next verse. For not the hearers of the law are just before God. It doesn't make you just to show up to Bible study. This doesn't matter in the judgment day. I'm glad you're here. But this doesn't get you saved. Listen to the second half of the sentence. It's not the hearers of the law that are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. Remember the people said, well, we're going to do it. Don't just hear it, do it. And who are we talking to? We're talking to the Gentiles. That's us. We're supposed to do it too. Verse 15, Romans 2 verse 15, show the work of the law written in their hearts. That's the Gentiles. This is what's going to drive the Jewish people crazy. Is they're gonna, Some of them are going to miss the Jesus thing. And then they're going to see the Holy Spirit come up in Gentiles and it's going to drive the Jewish people nuts that people like me have the life of God and, and the Holy Spirit and the joy of Christ abundant in my life. And that's going to bother them, right? The Jews, verse 15, show the work of the law written in their hearts. Their conscience also bears witness between themselves and their thoughts, accusing or else excusing them. So this is what the Gentiles are going to do. They're either going to show that the law is written on their hearts by just doing it, or they're going to accuse other people with the law, the Pharisees, or they're going to excuse the law and abandon what they're supposed to be doing. We're going to make excuses for why we don't do it. Well, if I want to get a divorce, this is just a hypothetical. If I want to get a divorce, I can do that if I write a contract and bring it to the judge. Remember the Pharisees had all these rules around divorce? Because they wanted to get divorces. So they, they make excuses. And this is the toughest thing when you're exhorting a brother or a sister in Christ and they're coming up with all these excuses why they don't want to do something and you just say, it sounds like you're making a lot of excuses. Just do it. It's super easy. Just do it. Okay? So my reaction to the law can be to be accused by it or to be excused by it. I just like that Paul does those kinds of things. There's a third option other than accusing or excusing. It's to just do the law. And that's the option that the people take. So are we better if we follow the law? Paul goes on, Romans 3, 9. No, you're not. You're not better at all if you follow the law. That's not the point. The law is the knowledge of sin, Romans 3.20. The point is to avoid sin. God knows your heart and he knows if you're trying to avoid the sin or not, Romans 3, the whole chapter. Never boast about how good you are, how you follow the law. Boasting is bad, Romans 3.27. It assumes that you're trying to follow the law, not in sin, but in righteousness. Paul's conclusion on this discussion is not that the Old Testament is irrelevant. He's not Paul is not a replacement theologist. He's just not, right? His conclusion is that we try to follow the law because we can, and we have the freedom to do that because sin's not shackling us anymore. So if I'm not shackled by sin, why do I make all these excuses for why I keep sinning? Well, Paul would say, stop sinning. And that's super hard for us to accept because we feel like we're bound to our sin. We can't stop. And Paul says, no, you can't. You have to do it through faith. Romans 3.31. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. 
in our lives, right? Or Romans 6.15, what then shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Certainly not. Don't you know that whom you present yourselves to obey, you are the one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. All the people of Israel said we're going to do it. That's the choice. It's still the choice. It hasn't changed. Jesus fulfilled this. He didn't erase this, right? We become nothing. God becomes everything. Can you make that change? Or is there some piece of you you got to hang on to because it's so precious? A little golden ring that you'll go right to the fires of Mount Doom holding because it's that precious to you. Everybody smiles when I make Lord of the Rings references. Our attempt, I, this is a huge point. I know this was a thing, but I don't think it's that far off track. I think this is what's going on in this chapter. Make a choice. Choose who you're going to follow. Decide what you're going to do. So after this chapter, we're going to get into more of a Levitical system that gives grace to sin. But in this chapter, we just have the law. Do you accept it or don't you? Then, verse 9, Moses went up, also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone, and it was like the very heavens in its clarity. So they're consecrated first. They go through this blood thing. There's a covenant that's made, and now we get the priests and the government that go up the mountain. They're going to see God, but it doesn't say they see it says they saw the God of Israel. So this is a really interesting passage. Note that they don't describe God. They describe what's underneath God, which looks like a sapphire stone. The footstool of a throne looks like a giant block of sapphire that you can see through crystal clear, like a blue diamond, right? This is a really curious thing to write. Um, first of all, you're not supposed to make a description of God. God doesn't like images of himself. So we don't get one here, which is consistent with the law we just got. Second, connect this to when Jacob saw his ladder and there was description of this heavenly kind of thing going on, the spiritual life. Isaiah 6, if you want to do more of a Bible study on this, it's kind of fun. It gets a little, you know, if you like this imagery. Isaiah 6 mentions a very similar thing. Ezekiel 1 mentions a very similar thing. Um, John in, in Revelation sees a throne and he sees the throne as though he's looking up and he can see a throne above him. And what he's describing is the footstool of it and it's radiant, it has a light to it. So there's a holiness to God at which the best we can do is describe what goes under God's feet. And I think that's kind of cool. Like God's that much bigger than us. Um, and then if you look at Revelation 4, 6, before the throne, there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. Sound like the same thing? It's almost like these people thousands of years apart are seeing the exact same vision, right? Or if you're a skeptic, they're reading Exodus and then using the same imagery and saying they saw it too. Either way, I think they saw the same thing. There's a presence here that does not include fear. Um, verse 10, it's under his feet. Verse 11, so they saw God. So it sounds like what they saw was the bottom of God's feet because no one has seen God according to other verses in the Bible. John 1.18, no man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten son, which is in the bosom of the father, he has declared them. Um, so there's this idea that what they're seeing is this cloud and fire that they can kind of describe as Shekinah glory, right? That no one sees the face of God, but we might be able to see the bottom of his feet through a transparent footstool of some sort, right? Ezekiel 1, I mentioned that. 
actually uses the word sapphire too. Above the firmament that was over their heads was the likeness of a throne, and it had the appearance of a sapphire stone, and upon the likeness of the throne was the likeness as the appearance of a man that sat on the throne. So I couldn't quite see the person, but I could see this sapphire stone that was underneath it. Verse 11. But on the nobles of the children of Israel, notice that I'm not doing any commentary on sapphire stones. If you've got commentary on that, I would love to hear it. I'm just moving on to verse 11. But on the nobles of the children of Israel, he did not lay his hand, so they saw God and they ate and they drank. What a great image, right? Here's the leaders of the priesthood, the leaders of the government. They're just going to sit and eat with God. Meals are so important. And they show up at every instance of religious festivals in in the Israel community. They all go with like eating and feasting or fasting. So the way in which we do that has something that goes together. What's interesting in verse 11 is the word nobles. We think of nobles and we think middle ages. That's way later in history. The word nobles here actually means corner pegs. So things that you peg something into, like a sheet, if you're going to peg it down onto the ground or something, it's those corner pegs that you use. So on the corner pegs of the children of Israel, there's these select, reserved, or set-aside instruments that God's going to use, right? Um, It's used in other places like Isaiah 41.9, Thou whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called thee from the chief men, the corner pegs thereof, and is said unto you, you are my servant, I've chosen you, and I won't cast you away. These people that God brought up, they're being selected. They're very special people to God. There's a remnant of people throughout history that God chooses to use. And then you get into predestination and all that sort of thing, right? Does God choose us or do we choose God? And I think it's kind of both. I just this morning heard a nice comparison. We think that's such a tough complex, but no, it's not. We get a day-to-day example of that relationship when we pick our spouses. I picked Stephanie. I did. And then I asked her to come be my wife. And she had to pick me back. So picking or choosing doesn't mean a lack of free will. She could have said no. She might have said no. She took some convincing. We have the same relationship with God. But so these corner pegs are really interesting. They kind of mean a corner peg or something that's been reserved or set aside or picked, right? Isaiah 22, verse 23 has a really similar kind of imagery. These images kind of come up throughout the Bible, and they're odd little images of corner pegs, things that pin something down and how important that is. And I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place, and he shall be for a glorious throne to his father's house. Isaiah 22 connects somebody that will be on a throne with somebody who gets nailed down, right? Somebody who's specially chosen and set aside. Zechariah 10.4 says, Out of him came forth the corner, and out of him the nail, and out of him the battle bow, and out of him every oppressor together. These are weird images that come up through the Bible, but they seem to be fairly consistent, and they seem to point to somebody who's in a princely selected noble state that's being pinned down. And if you don't see the connection in the New Testament on that, you haven't been coming to Bible study very long, right? It's really interesting how it happens. So that happens right here in this chapter, right? The nobles of the children of Israel, he did not lay his hand. There's going to be selected people that God doesn't lay his hand on. And right here, the hand does not get laid on these people, these people that are chosen, right? Verse 12, then the Lord said to Moses, 
come up to me on the mountain and be there, and I will give you tablets of stone and the law and the commandments which I have written that you may teach them. So there's this dinner, all the leaders are there, and now Moses is going to come up by himself. Actually, he's not going to go up by himself. Joshua is going to go with him for a while, right? So Moses arose with the assistant, Joshua, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we come back to you indeed. Indeed, Aaron and her are with you. Um, Remember Aaron and her already helped with the prayer in Exodus 17, holding the arms up. So I'm going to leave those two with you. And if any man has a difficulty, let him go to them. And then Moses went up into the mountain, into the mountain, and a a cloud covered the mountain. So this is kind of interesting. This is the second time we've seen Joshua. He's going to be a great leader for Israel. I think the great leader of Israel starts out with the title assistant in verse 13. We should note that humility, and I think that's awesome, right? He's going to be the guy, but right now he's just an assistant. Joshua's name at this point in history, according to Numbers 13, is not Joshua. So it's interesting that here the word Joshua gets used. His name at this point in history is Oshua. The J doesn't get added until Jesus is with him. So his name is Salvation, and then in Numbers 13, verses 8 through 14, it talks about his name got changed to J. Oshua, um, which is Jehovah is our salvation, right? Uh, it's used in anticipation at this point here, and remember Joshua in the Greek is Jesus, right? So Jesus goes up with Moses. The assistant Jesus goes up with Moses. Verse 16, Now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, And the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. And the sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So the word rested is a really interesting word. And we're going to hit this a bunch of times because it's a big Old Testament concept. The word rested, the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai is shakan. It means to abode or to, to make an abode, to dwell with, to live with somebody. So when Levi came to live in our house, he rested with us. He made a abode with us. Shekan is also the root word for Shekana or Shekinah. And so we see throughout the Old Testament that anytime God is manifested in this cloud type form, it's called a Shekinah glory. It means God with us or God is resting with us or God's abiding with us. God's going to um, Shekan dwell. And here's the other cool the thing in Hebrew, it's shikan is to dwell. In the Greek, shikan is tabernacle. So when we move to the New Testament, we use the same word. And I think it's kind of cool. God thinks that word's pretty important because it shows up with two different, slightly different meanings in two different languages that happen to be the two languages of the Bible. And it's a consuming fire, a shekinah glory that moves and leaves them. And it's that same word that will tabernacle with us or take up residence with us when we get to the New Testament. So, some people's dogs. All right. All right. Follow me on this if you can, even with the dog doing his antics. The Shekinah glory, when they build the tabernacle, God's going to move into the tabernacle and his Shekinah glory will fill the tabernacle. In other words, anytime people look to the tabernacle, they're going to see this presence of God visibly. The presence of God in the tabernacle then moves to the temple. When Solomon dedicates the temple, the Shekinah glory moves into it after the, the te- and all the people are like, oh, there's God dwelling in the thing. So there's this presence of God in the temple until they profane the temple and they start bringing pornography into the temple and other idols and stuff, God leaves it. 
and the Shekinah glory in Jerusalem takes off out the east gate. Today, the east gate is concreted up because it's believed by the Jews that when the Shekinah glory comes back to the temple when it's rebuilt, it's going to come through that third, that east gate that it left out of. Does this all make sense? All right. I don't know if I'm going too fast through this. So there's multiple gates in Jerusalem. East gates were left. When the Muslims took over Jerusalem, they concreted up the east gate. Like that's going to stop God. If you go there today, or if you look at an eastern view of Jerusalem, you'll see a giant massive gate that's been completely blocked up. That's the east gate. So the Shekinah glory leaves out the temple when they profane it, and it only returns... The next time we see it in the Bible is in John 1.14. That's what John's claiming in the Gospel of John. When he says in John 1.14, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, Shekah. The Shekinah glory came back. And we beheld his glory and the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John claims that Jesus was the Shekinah glory that Jesus came back to dwell among us and that that's what's going on there. This is where the Jewish people had issues with, with the Christians, right? These new people that believed that because the Jewish people had this image of a big smoke and fire thing. And John said it wasn't smoke and fire. It was Jesus himself. You've got to understand this. And remember, John was with Jesus for three years and believed he was God. And then he was taught by Jesus after a resurrection. He dwelt with them and taught them for a while. So Jesus is going back through these Old Testament passages saying, that's me. So when John writes it, he's writing what Jesus taught him, right? So that's the claim of Christianity. The Shekinah glory has come back. Further, that Shekinah glory is also transmitted through the Holy Spirit, and the new tabernacle is not a building in Jerusalem. It's you. That when you accept this covenant, the Holy Spirit comes into you, and there's a glory about you that other people can see. There's a peace and a grace and a rest and a kindness and a love that we are witnesses to the world of the glory of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit that dwells in us. Shekinah glory. And this is the kind of one of the first places where we see that. I think that's super cool. He called to Moses the consuming fire, a call esh. A call is devouring, raging. It means to feed on something. It's a fire that's alive and violent and consuming. It rests upon the mountain. Esh is where we get the word ash from. It is uh, so a, a call ash, a consuming fire, is something that takes everything down to nothing. It burns it to ash. It's a glowing fire, kind of a supernatural flaming thing. That's what they see on the mountain. So when Moses goes into the midst of the cloud, verse 18, that's not like an easy thing to do. Because if you're the children of Israel and you see this raging, devouring fire and you hear the voice of God, Moses, Moses come up into the fire, and Moses is like, really? Like that, you want me to go into that? And then Moses goes into it. I'm thinking the children of Israel think Moses is dead, right? He's going into that. God's called him. We just gave a sacrifice. Moses is a living sacrifice, calls him into that. And they don't see Moses for a while. So verse 18, so Moses went into the midst of the cloud and went up into the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So there's a point, I'm not trying to make excuses for the children of Israel, but I think they're thinking Moses has done his thing and he's gone. He's left them. They can't see him. At the very least, he's disappeared. He's gone up. He's ascended. And they can't see him. 40 days and 40 nights. We know that's the same amount of time that, Moses, that Noah was away in a boat. We know that's the same amount of time that Jesus went into the wilderness. So we have three different covenants. The Noahic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, 
and the Jesus covenant, each one is sealed with this period of 40 days and 40 nights. Kind of a time away, right? The tablets are going to be in the ark, the ones that uh, God's going to give them. Those are going to sit inside the tabernacle, which is going to sit directly in the middle of this people, which sit directly in the middle of the planet. So this covenant that's going to get made for a thousand years is going to dwell in that kind of centrality around the planet. So Moses went into the midst of the cloud and went up into the mountain. All Moses does here is deliver the message of God. It's a pretty clear claim that it's God that's doing this, not humans. So Moses is presented as a subsequent event to everything after. So there's a previous story that goes up to verse 17, and then it says, so Moses is like we're starting a new story, right? Let's step back then for the narrative elements. I want you to get the big picture because this is really cool when you put it all together, right? So summing all of this up that we just read, there's a time where the mediator Moses hangs out with the elders and they all see God and hear from God together. Then they hear directly God, then they hear God directly and God declares that his mediator is going to be Moses and they eat and they drink in the presence of the God. They seal this covenant. They seal it with blood. Then the mediator goes on to be with God for a time in which God anoints Moses as the judge, the authority, but they do it all when they can't see Moses. He's away doing that. And then the people have to just wait in faith that Moses is going to return, but they don't wait with nothing. They have the word of God. They have the law. They have the judges, they have the priesthood, and they get to wait with those tools. That's what they get. And then they have this ever-present Shekinah glory that confirms that all this stuff is true. So first day goes by, second day goes by, they're trying to live under the law, third day, fourth, a week goes by, two weeks go by, a month goes, goes by. They still have the priest, they still have the word of God, but time just keeps passing. And the people are then supposed to continue to keep the covenant. God's going to keep it for thousands of years, everlasting. But the people are going to forget in like a month and a half. And they're going to screw this up. But at some level, they were given the tool, They were given all the tools by which God could say, I trusted you would keep the law. I gave it to you. I wrote it down for you. This mirrors perfectly how Jesus explains the new covenant. Let's look at Jesus with the exact same kind of comparison. There's a season where Jesus comes and he meets with the new elders of the church, these, these chosen pegs that he gets. Um, they see God in the baptism. There's a select few kind of of them that will be the cornerstone of the church. He even calls Peter that, right? God's not going to touch those people that are his servants. So come judgment, those people in the church are going to be spared the judgment. In verse 14, Moses leaves the authority with the elders until he returns. Jesus does the same thing. He leaves authority with the disciples and says, anything you do in my name, I'll do it. They hear directly from Jesus. God declares that Jesus is his son in whom he's well pleased. They eat and drink with Jesus and those images and those meals are prominent in the gospels and they seal a covenant with Jesus in the last supper, right? Then Jesus ascends to be with God, anoints the church to ultimately be the authority on the earth and a holy priesthood of the church, let's us people. And then we can't see Jesus for a period of time. He's up in the Shekinah glory. We can't see him directly, but we're left with all we need. We have the word of God, we have the Holy Spirit, and we're supposed to work with those two things. And we're supposed to wait in faith that Jesus will return left with those tools. But we have the Holy Spirit, this ever-present glory that we can see in the lives of each other when we meet together and hang out together and tell each other our stories. 
we see that love between us that doesn't look like the rest of the world, right? We see a unity in Christ that he gives us. So plenty of evidence that's right there. We're just supposed to wait until he returns and do it in faith. See the connection? Moses makes a covenant that ends in death. Sorry, Moses. He probably gets punk points in heaven for doing that. Jesus makes a covenant that ends in life and that he redeems us, right? So Jesus fulfills the whole covenant that cycles back from death to life. In all of this, Moses, God said to Moses, you can draw near, I'll keep you safe, and I'll reveal myself to you under the new covenant in the light of the word of God and under the sacrifice of Jesus. God dares us to follow him, just like he did with these Israelites. I dare you, right? I'm going to take everything. I'm going to take me away. I'm not going to be a God of force. I want to be a God of love, and I dare you to follow me and give me your whole heart. And God makes that appeal to his people, and it hasn't changed. It's the same thing. We have to make that decision. This is what I think David loved about the law, right? Is that the law essentially gives us a path to where we know God and we can try to serve God and do it. And we can, and David made mistakes too, right? He was a murderer. He was an adulterer. He did most of these things. He lied. You know, he, he messed up in a lot of different areas, but ultimately the law brings us into a relationship with Christ because it draws us to Christ. This is foundational for a, a Christ being the covenant, right? And that Christ gives us a path to, path to life where this covenant Moses made is basically going to be an accusation for death, right? So I told you I'd end with Psalm 1, and I want to read that because I think this is what David was reading and thinking about and contemplating when he wrote Psalm 1 right? And he's thinking about who do you deal with? Who do you hang out with? And he has a heart of love and compassion and repentance. And he starts to recognize there are other people in the world that are not, they don't have the Shekinah glory. They don't love and they don't have a heart for love. They have a heart for accusations and they have a heart for causes and things to protest. And they have a heart of chaos and violence. And David's like, man, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, or stands in the path of sinners, or sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and his law he meditates day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit in his season, whose leaf shall not wither. This is before the New Testament. We're supposed to bear fruit. We meditate on God's word. We meditate on the law. It brings fruit in our life. Simple equation. Like, do we want to sign on for that? Yes. Is that reasonable to sign on for? Absolutely. I want that. And whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so. I'm testing God on this whatever he does shall prosper thing, by the way. Total like life test of that, right? You can pray for me. The ungodly are not so, but like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteousness. They will not dwell with the Shekinah glory. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. All we do is try to act in the heart that God has for us. We meditate, we follow him, we get roots, we get fruit. And God blesses that. He loves that. That's the relationship. That's the feast of the lamb is that opportunity to live ungodly lives or to live a life that is godly by defying the sin that rises up on our own hearts and getting rid of that sin because that sin's going to get blown away at some point. And I don't want to be anywhere near it. Frankly, you could personalize the Psalm 1 and be like, blessed is me when I don't scorn things. Blessed am I when I don't do these things or sit in a seat 
Um, there's tons. We'll get to Psalm 1, too. There's great inter- lots of commentary and interpretations of that. But after the law, that thing that accuses us, here's this idea of covenant with God in, in chapter 24. And it's beautiful, right? And it's easy to just read through chapter 24. But think of this. This is a covenant with God. And for 40 days and 40 nights, they're rocking that covenant with God. And they're living that life. There aren't a lot of murders in Israel for 40 days and 40 nights. They're not lying. They're not cheating each other. They're just living this thing where they can love each other and love God wholeheartedly. Amen to that. This isn't Egypt anymore. This is Israel. And we're a different people. We are set apart and we don't hang out with the scorners, the scoffers, and the mockers. We're not those people. Amen. I remember first reading that and thinking, I don't want to hang out in the teacher's lounge anymore. Because the teacher's lounge is where the teachers would complain about the kids. And I'm like, I shouldn't even sit in that room anymore. So I didn't. I started eating lunch in my classroom and just praying for my students. And then one day I'm doing that and Mr. Gabler comes walking by and goes, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm eating lunch. He goes, oh, you eat lunch in here every day? And I was like, yeah. And he goes, I would love to eat lunch with you because I would rather talk about the great kids that we have than complain about the kids. And all they do is complain in the teacher's lounge. And by the end of the next month or so, there were about five or six people and we all rotate which classroom we ate lunch in. We would hang around and just talk about great teaching, great lesson plans, great ideas for what we were doing. And we became a different people, set apart from those people that do things in another way because we wanted to do that. It's easy to feel like the law accuses us, but it doesn't. It just tells us what to pursue. Hi, Danny. The question is how we, how, re, or how responsive are we to that in our life and to what degree do we let that consuming fire start in us and consume our whole lives? And that's it. So let's pray. Dear Lord and King, we just pray for your blessing. Uh, I pray, Lord, for us to see your glory in the way that you have shown that to us as you show us your glory in each other. And Lord, it's as we wrestle with our own will and our own sin, Lord, we want to just spend our time with those people that love the Lord and meditate on your law day and night. We love you, Lord. We want to hang out with people who love you too. And Lord, we just pray for you to bless the church as we are set aside. We are corner pegs, Lord, in your kingdom. And you have set us to a path of righteousness. And that doesn't mean to continue wallowing in our sin. You've set us free from that sin. So help us to stop doing it, Lord, that sin that keeps coming back in our life, that keeps rearing its ugly head. Lord, help us to defeat it in the Holy Spirit, in the name of God, because purity is better than shame. And help us to just pursue your purity and your holiness so we can live a life where we're not guilty of those things, Lord, because we've stopped doing them. And Lord, just help us to do that in your Holy Spirit, because you bless us with that, you fill us with that power, and you have always done that. Your presence has always been with us. Your word has always been with us. And you've set those things in place from the beginning of time. So we thank you, Lord, that we can humbly come into your presence, that we can hear the word of, of God through the Bible, Lord, and that we can hear what you have to say in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.